Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. Anyway, Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse number 13, and we'll read through the rest of the chapter. Again, we should know this story well, but like the Word of God, it's kind of like you read it, and it's like it's like a newspaper that just keeps rebooting every single day. It's the same paper, new, new, new information almost every day, okay? Verse number 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied and said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of the living God, which by the way is the proper answer. It's the only answer that suffices when we ask who is Jesus. There's a lot of people who through the centuries and through the years have said a lot of things about who Jesus is and we try to explain him. Here's who Jesus is. He's the Messiah. He's the son of the living God. He is God incarnate. He is our savior. He's the prince of peace, the lamb of God. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the rose of Sharon. He's the light of the world. He's the bread of life. He's the great I am. He is alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. And there's so many things that we could go on and on and say that Jesus is, but he is those things because he is the Messiah. It says in verse number 17, Jesus responded, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades or the gates of hell will not overpower or prevail against it. I will, give you the keys, the, uh, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Then he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. From then on, Jesus began, and this is where we're really going to be focusing in today, is verses 21 through the end of the chapter. From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes to be killed and to be raised on the third day. Notice that. It wasn't the bad sinner people that killed Jesus, right? Who was it that wanted Jesus dead? It was the super religious, self-righteous church people, okay? That, that, that stands as a warning today, even to the church today, that we should not get too big for our britches that we think that we can begin to advise Jesus on what is right and wrong for him to do. Peter took him aside, and he began to rebuke, speaking of telling Jesus what's right and wrong for him to do, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. I won't let it happen, for I am Peter, I am Petros, I am the rock. I can't do that rock eyebrow thing that, you know, the wrestler does. Verse 23, <clears throat> Jesus turned and he told Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you are not thinking about God's concerns, but only about human concerns. And then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, then let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will find it. For what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world yet loses his life or his soul? And what will anyone give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with angels in the glory of his Father, and then we will reward, and then he will reward each according to what he has done. Truly, I tell you that there are some standing here who will not even taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is a roller coaster passage, isn't it? You know? 
Who do people think I am? Oh, they got it all wrong. Who do you think I am? I think you're the Messiah. That's wonderful. Um, Here's the keys to the kingdom. Here's great power and authority. By the way, I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to die. Peter, I just called you Peter and said I'm going to build the church on that great faith that you had. But right now you're acting a little bit more like Satan than Peter. And so, you know, you're you're a hindrance to me. You're more concerned about human concerns than you are earthly concern or than you are godly concerns. And then he turns around and says, you got to crucify yourself. You got to carry your cross. And then all of a sudden, oh, but don't worry because I'm going to come back and glory. I mean, is anybody else kind of like this with this passage? Guess what? That's the nature of the life of a disciple. One day you feel like everything's going great. The next day you feel like you're down in the valley. The beautiful thing about all of this is that while we're like this, guess where Jesus is? It's right here. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's why he deserves to be followed. That's why he deserves our faith. That's why he deserves our allegiance. And that's why he deserves everything that we can offer him in praise and worship. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we could be with you this morning and in your word. And I pray this morning as we finish up this time that we've spent in Matthew 16, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate us to truth and that you would help us to understand your word. Father, help us not just to understand it academically, but help us to take it and let it sink into our heart, our spirit, and our soul. I pray as well, if there's somebody that's listening or watching or is here this morning that is not your disciple, has not followed you in faith and, and, and abandon of self. I pray this morning, today would be their day of salvation. Bless in this time. We trust you in everything. In Jesus' name we pray. And God's church said, amen. Have you ever heard the phrase caveat emptor? Anybody ever heard that phrase, caveat emptor? It's a Latin phrase. What does it mean? Nobody knows. Okay, only one person raised their hand, but it means buyer beware. Okay, caveat emptor. It's a, it's a phrase that's used in economics and also in, uh, you know, when you're, when you're thinking about business and things, it means buyer beware. What it means is don't get suckered into a bad deal or don't buy a lemon or don't, don't buy stuff that you don't need or don't buy something that's not going to serve you in the way that you want it to be served. Anyone who has ever fallen victim to buying into a bill of goods. Anybody ever done that before? Anybody ever gotten into a bad deal, made a bad purchase, felt suckered into something like that? Okay. You know, you wish you had known caveat emptor, the principles of that maybe beforehand. Stacy will be very happy to tell you that when it comes to caveat emptor, I don't pay any attention to it, especially when it comes to late night infomercials. Okay. There is not a late night infomercial that I don't look at and go, all of a sudden, I absolutely, positively need that product. I have to have that product. I don't know how life has been lived without that product. Anybody else like suckers for the as seen on TV stuff? You know, okay, a couple of you. Don't get me to Gatlinburg because we drive past the as seen on TV stores. I'm like, hey guys, and they're all like, no, we're not going there while we're here, dad. We're not doing it. So I don't know what it is, but I am a sucker when it comes to that. So you want to know some of the things that we've bought. But here's the thing. Stacy will tell you that I'm the sucker, but she sits right beside me when I do it. <laughs> she's like, yeah, honey, if that's what you want. And then she's like, and then I'll be like, no, I didn't buy it. She's like, why didn't you buy that? We needed that. And I'm like, I didn't know you wanted it. So, so we have a set of Ronco knives. Anybody remember the Ronco knives? Anybody else got those? Yeah, they're okay. The handles fall off after a couple of uses, but you know, they work really, really well the first time out of the box. Uh, how about the total gym? Anybody ever, ever heard of the total gym? It's in my basement, standing straight up on the wall. I haven't used it in like two years, but I have carried it the couple times that we've moved. Um, uh, the shake weight. Anybody remember the shake weight? Remember the shake weight? Yeah, there's a picture of me and Stacy working out on the shake weight. 
We really got ripped, okay? Just in case you're wondering, all right? Um, yeah, I have it, and uh, that's, us. that's us enjoying it. Uh, the belly burner, this is one that Stacy didn't even know that I had. Um, this is one that I got before we got married, so this was years back. What this is, this is a magical little device that promised you could get six-pack abs by just putting on this magical belt that will cause your muscles to twitch. And what they didn't tell you was that they were gonna harness all of the technology from the electric chair and put it in this little belt. You know, they're like, here, put this, put this conductive cream on your belly and put this around you. And I turn it on and I'm like, oh gosh, it's electric shocks, okay? And then all of a sudden I'm like, well, I'm convulsing and all of a sudden I'm smelling like burnt pork rinds and everything. And so I, I didn't use that, that anymore. Our most sucker moment in our life happened actually before we got married. We were engaged, and, uh, which was uh, a little over 20 years ago now, because our 20th anniversary is coming up in July. Um, hard to believe. I know I still don't look a day over 60, um, but no, I'm just teasing. Uh, we, um, <clears throat> but we, Stacy had gone to a bridal show or something like that. But, you know, and if you've ever gone through the stress of planning a wedding and everything, sometimes you have things that you disagree on, and sometimes you have things that you agree on and everything. We really, honestly, I think we did pretty well. Uh, we only threatened to break up like twice uh, through this, through the whole thing. But no, one of the things that we definitely agreed on in planning the wedding is we wanted to have a really nice honeymoon. And so we had really kind of like turned our eyes upon, we really liked the idea of going to like one of those all-inclusive like resorts in the Bahamas. We wanted to go to Sandals, if you've ever seen those commercials, you know, because I wanted to look like those per perfect people walking down these pristine beaches and stuff. I thought that would just be the great kickstart to our marriage. So we really wanted to go to Sandals. And so I started pricing them out. And I'm like, man, you're really paying for a lot of this stuff, okay? And so, but anyway, so Stacy, I think, had gone to a bridal show or something and filled out a card that she's going to be a new bride. So all of a sudden, she starts getting all these mailers at her house for all these different things coming on, uh, going on and stuff. She gets a mailer for this company that is selling cookware, Okay, and uh, she calls me one day, really excited. She says, "Derek, we have to go to this thing." They're saying, "If you, we can go and hear this presentation about this cookware, and if we buy some of the cookware, we'll get a free all-inclusive resort at a sandals-like, uh, at a sandals-like thing for for our honeymoon." I'm like, "Okay, we'll go." So we go out to the Holiday Inn out off of Interstate 75. That should have told you something right away, right? We get there and we sit down at this nice, you know, this nice place. They've, they've offered us, you know, they've offered us some water and, and there's, there's little hors d'oeuvres and stuff there and everything. None of it was cooked on the cookware. That should have been another, another sign. Um, but anyway, so I sit down they're starting to tell us about this cookware and how it's the greatest thing ever and how it will last forever and how if you don't get this cookware, your marriage will not last longer than six months and, and all this stuff. And I'm telling you, man, it's really, really nice cookware, okay? But it's like an hour-long spill about the cookware and they're telling us all the stuff about what it's going to do for you and everything and how you got to have a nice set of cookware. And then towards the end of that, the PowerPoint changes to this beautiful picture of a resort like in the Caribbean or in the Bahamas somewhere. And I'm like, oh man. And there's like 10 or 12 other couples sitting there and all guys about my age. That's when we, all of us, I watch every guy in the room, we sit up and we perk up and we lean in as he goes through this beautiful PowerPoint presentation saying, hey, if you buy the prestige package of this cookware, we're going to throw in a sandals style vacation a honeymoon because you deserve it. And when you get home from that honeymoon, you're going to have some amazing cookware to keep on to just have a, a fantastic life after that. And we're all like, okay, okay. So then he starts rolling out. You know, here's what the prestige package costs and here's the payment plan and all that stuff. And all the guys, all we're hearing is when do I get my vacation, right? So like, I think like six or seven of us ended up, and I say us because we did, we ended up, our very first purchase as a, as a, as a couple was cookware, from the no-name company at the Holiday Inn at I-75, okay? 
That was our first big major financial decision. And so they said, here, buy this cookware. In two weeks, the cookware will arrive at your door, and in it will be the brochure and all of your claim ticket for your magical vacation. And I've got to tell you, the presentation, the pictures of this resort looked amazing. Except for when we got there, I'm at work. I was working a little bit later than Stacy. Stacy calls me from her house and says, get over here. And she's crying, and I'm like, oh, no, what's happened? And uh, so I get over, and she's like, there's all the cookware. Every piece is strewn out around her living room. And I'm like, uh-oh. And, she, and then on the middle of the, on the coffee table there is laying the packet of information about this amazing honeymoon that we're to have. And I open up the brochure, and it looks nothing like the pictures that were on. Imagine that. I know you're shocked. None of you look shocked, as I was. I was very shocked. Okay? And so immediately I'm like, there's got to be a mistake. They must have sent us the wrong thing. We got the prestige package, babe, and we're supposed to get the sandals one. So I get on the phone and I call because that's the husband I'm going to be. And they say, oh, no, that's the one you were supposed to get. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. This is not the one I was supposed to get. None of these pictures look like what, what the guy showed us at the Holiday Inn out by, by I-75. And she begins to explain um, that, you know, this is it. This is what comes with you. This is the sandal style. It is an all-inclusive resort. And I'm like, but yeah, I don't want roach is included in my resort. That's what this looks like. So we hang up the phone. I did not get what I wanted. So we begin to Google things and we begin to Google. And apparently this is some sort of scam that this company has been using. Some people had been describing the honeymoon that they went on. that was like the honeymoon from Hades um, at this place. So I get back on the phone and I say, look, they're saying this place is not very good. I don't know what's going on. This is, this is, you know, this is false advertisement. And she says, look, we understand that the vacation is not that good. We contracted with this company about a year ago. And what we're hearing is it's not a good vacation. And um, we are three months into our contract that, or we're three months away from getting out of this contract and we won't be working with this company again. But our cookware is amazing. And I'm like, I don't want your amazing cookware. I want my amazing honeymoon. And so I say, I want your address because I'm sending this stuff back. And she's like, sir, you, this is a non-refundable purchase that you made. You, can't, you, you can keep the cookware. You're still going to have to pay for it. And I said, no. On principle, I don't want your garbage. So I marched myself over to the FedEx office and I put this box up and I said, I want you to send this back to the hole where it came from. The guy behind the counter goes, hey, you're getting married pretty soon, aren't you? I'm like, how did you know? He said, my wife and I bought the prestige package too about a year ago. And I'm like, really? You kidding me? He's like, I was like, yeah. He goes, I said, yeah. He said, uh, he said, yeah, we went on that vacation, man. It was awful. He's like, there were like roaches in our room and, and stuff. He said it was, it was terrible. He goes, but the cookware is amazing. And I'm like, okay, that's great. And he goes, how did you get them to agree to let you return it for a refund? I said, oh, I ain't getting a refund. I just don't want the stuff. And he goes, what? I said, unlike you, I'm a man of principle. And I paid my $100 shipping fee to send it back, and I walked out that door feeling good about myself. And we, here's the deal. We still had to pay for the cookware. We ended up finally actually getting to go where we wanted to go, thanks to family members who were so loving and contributed to that as a wedding gift and, and scrimping and saving and actually cutting down the time that we, would have say, that, we would have, that we would have stayed and everything. But we ended up also having to pay for cookware that we didn't keep out of principle, and then have to get cookware later on at another price that probably wasn't as good as the cookware that we would have had because the cookware was awesome. So anybody else ever have a situation like that? Yeah, buyer beware, right? Always look out at what's, what's going on, okay? Um, here's the thing. Last week we started this message entitled, The Disciple Life is the Greatest Life. If I'm trying to sell to you, if I have, if I have this meeting of people where I call people to come in and I want to tell them how great this Christian life really is, what am I going to tell you about it? 
I'm going to tell you, you get to go to heaven. I'm going to tell you that you have a friend that sticks closer than a brother. I'm going to tell you all of these things. But you know what Jesus did when he was talking about being a disciple? He said, you got to pick up your cross and follow me. you got to die daily. You're going to suffer for being a follower of me. You're going to be despised and rejected just like I was. A lot of you are going to go to a cross or going to be killed for your faith. But I, t- I promise you that it's the greatest life ever. Who wants to follow? That's so different from what we do in the church today. We try to sometimes package the disciple life like it's got nothing but pros to it and there are no cons. Folks, there are cons to the disciple life, but it's still the greatest life because in the end, there is nothing to compare to eternity with Jesus. And in the meantime, there is nothing to compare to going through the hardships of this life with a friend that sticks closer than a brother. That's why the disciple life is still the greatest life. But I'm so thankful that Jesus was not a salesman, that Jesus was a savior and is a savior. Jesus as a salesman would have never gone through the cross. He would have pitched this wonderful thing of following him and then he would have petered out when it came time to go to the cross. But Jesus is our savior. He is the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world and he lays it all out in front of us. Here's what it means to follow me. Only serious candidates should apply. And so what we looked at last Sunday, the first part of the message, we looked at two great factors of the life of a disciple. First of all, the the disciple lives in light of a great proclamation. We saw where Peter made this proclamation that was greater than anything else people thought about Jesus. Peter said, you are the Messiah, you are the son of the living God. To become a disciple of Jesus Christ, we must make that proclamation of faith. We must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. We must proclaim that Jesus is Lord. We have to identify ourselves as followers of Christ. We live in light of the proclamation of faith in Jesus. We also live in light of the proclamation that God makes about Jesus himself saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Follow him, hear what he says. We also live in light of Jesus' proclamation about us when he says, you are mine When he told Peter or Simon, he said, you are no longer Simon, but you are Peter, you are Petros, and upon your great faith I will build your church. God changes not only our name, he changes us from being dead to being alive, to being his as a disciple. So we live in light of a great proclamation, but we also live in light light of a possession of great power. That when Jesus saves us, he doesn't just save us and say, okay, see you at heaven, see you when you get there. No, he gives us the investment of the Holy Spirit that lives with us and abides with us, walks with us, talks with us. He gives us his word that feeds us and sustains us. He gives us his church that encourages us and comes alongside of us to bear our burdens together and to fellowship and to minister together in holy communion with him and with one another. We have great power as disciples. Do we have great challenges? Yes, but as disciples, we also have great power that is not our own, but it is given to us by God to overcome those challenges and to thrive in the midst of those challenges. Today we wonder what's going to happen if I lose this freedom or if I lose this ability and if, uh, if this goes away or if this changes. In the midst of those changes, let me tell you something, church. God is still God. We are still his disciples and the end game is still the same end game. The ending of the story will always still be the end of the story. In Jesus, we are victors. In Jesus, we win. 
So today, I want to finish the message by looking at three more factors of the greatness of the disciple life. In the middle of all of this, sandwiched in between one and two and four and five, is this almost negative but very climactic point, is that a disciple lives in the great tension of colliding worlds. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, as a follower, as the church of Jesus Christ, we have to understand that we live in constant tension between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man, between heaven and earth. And those worlds are constantly at collision with one another. We live in the tension of flesh and spirit, and they don't get along. They're like oil and water. They don't mix, and they're constantly at war with one another. This is why Paul says in the book of Ephesians and in Galatians that we're at spiritual warfare. This is not a game. It's not just something we only do on Sundays. The Christian life is daily, 24-7, embattlement in this collision between colliding worlds. Does anybody else feel the tension, though? We feel the tension of these colliding worlds and what we want within our spirit. Our spirit yearns for the kingdom of heaven to be one and for the kingdom of heaven to be established now. It's what the disciples were hoping for as well. But Jesus said that it will happen one day at the right time. But until then, we still live in the midst of that same tension. And we're going to feel that tension. And that tension is going to manifest itself sometimes in frustration with those who don't see it the way we see it. In in doubt of Jesus because we think, why does it feel like, as, as they say in, as it says in the Old Testament in the book of Psalms, why does it feel like the heathen rage? We live in that tension a lot, but I want to promise you this, that in the midst of that tension is that power to be able to thrive in the midst of that tension and to make a difference in the midst of that tension. See, Jesus in verse number 21, right after saying, hey guys, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom, Whatever you bind on heaven, you'll loose on earth. And whatever is bound on, whatever is loosed on heaven, you'll be able to loose, loose on earth. All of these things. And you're thinking, man, it's going to be great to be a disciple. And then he says in verse number 21, from then on. What that means is, from then on, all they heard was, I'm going to die. I'm going to give you great power, but I'm going to die. Now, to a person who's just living under human concerns and thinking about the flesh and thinking about the kingdom of the world, you're like, okay, so how's all this power going to come if you're going to be overpowered and you're going to die? How's this going to happen? And so that's where we pick up here in verse number 21. From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed and raised the third day. So in verses 21 through 23, a couple of significant things happen in this text that are important to grasp. This is the very first time in this text, this is the very first time that Jesus will predict his suffering and his death in detail to his disciples. Up until then, through the miracles, through the teachings, even through sometimes people getting mad at him, they were like, we're following you because you're the Messiah. But they didn't understand exactly what that was going to end with, and Jesus begins to tell them, look, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die. And I'm going to raise in three days. Now, that's not something that people hear every day. So it's really tough for them to wrestle with. Today, we have the benefit of over 2,000 years of this telling us that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. They had not seen that happen, heard that happen. Nothing had been recorded of that happening before. So it was a struggle for them. And then the other thing that happened is this is also where the timeline of Jesus' ministry is going to veer from being broadly ministered in helping people out to being very, very laser-focused on the city of Jerusalem to being bringing Jesus down. 
so to speak. From this point on, if you look in the Gospels, from this point, Jesus is going to be making his way to the cross rather than building his ministry up. So these, things, these two things make a very pivotal passage in the life and ministry of Christ and in the relationship that he has with his disciples. And it's also going to be a pivotal time for the disciples in that things are about to get really serious for them too. Oh yeah, they'd heard him preach the Beatitudes saying, if you want to follow me, you've got to, blessed are the peacemakers and blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are the humble and you're going to be reviled for my sake and all of these things. But now they're beginning to understand how it's going to happen. Peter struggles with this in the direction of God's plan. Look at verse number 22. It says, Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him. Oh no, Lord, this is never going to happen to you. A couple things that really cross me about this verse that really kind of like, like get my attention and perk my ears up. First of all, Peter takes Jesus aside. Okay, in the original language, what that means is he was taken by force. Okay? So when I was growing up, and I grew up in, I grew up in, in Lexington Baptist Temple and had the pleasure of my, you know, my father-in-law, the man who would be my father-in-law was my pastor, he became my mentor. But when I was a kid, I was not always just a, a choir boy that you see standing before you today. I don't know if you know this, but my father-in-law had this move that he would use, and I know that he would use this because he used it and practiced it and perfected it on me quite well, where he would grab me under my arm, lift, because he was very tall, when I was about 10, 11 years old, and would lift me up and move me where I want to go because I had lost my center of gravity. I'd lost my foundation. I'm like, I'm going with you wherever you carry me at this point. This is the way I picture Peter grabbing Jesus. He takes Jesus aside and is like, we're going to have a little talk over here, buddy. Now, whether that's the way it happens, but that's exactly what I like. That's the, exactly the way I think about it. He pulls him aside and the Bible says he then begins to rebuke him. That's from that Greek word epitomio, meaning to verbally correct or to denounce someone. So not only is he correcting Jesus, but he is denouncing Jesus' plans as not being good enough or not being right. Have you ever been there where you felt like you needed to tell Jesus, look, I don't think you're doing the right thing? We look at Peter and we're like, why in the world would you do this? But we do this all the time, don't we? We may not be able to physically grab him by the arm, but we can spiritually neglect him in prayer. We can spiritually get mad and say, Jesus should do this. Or we can build him up and say, well, Jesus would be okay with this. And we know good and well the Bible says he wouldn't. We do this all the time. We try to correct him. We try to, or we struggle with the way that Jesus is leading or the way that he is working. The truth is that we're tempted to do this so often because it's the constant struggle of the tension of the colliding worlds that we live in. What did Jesus respond? See, I, sometimes we have the benefit, like I said, of living 2,000 years after Jesus, having the Bible, living in a nation that has, you know, predominantly, you know, been very kind to Judeo-Christian ethic and teaching and church and things. And if you've been raised in a Christian home or around church, you're familiar with the story. And you're familiar with what Jesus taught and seeing how some of it has played out. But for them, it's really difficult and here's the thing, we're so familiar with it, and it's still difficult for us today. I don't think we understand or realize just how radical it really was to follow Jesus Christ at that time, at that day. And what scares me is I, I think about, sometimes I think about this, if I were Peter, or if I were Matthew, would I still stick with him? Think about that. Or would I be more like the Pharisees or the scribes that are just like 
so embellished or so enveloped in my traditions and the way things always are and the way things were and what I've already known and been taught that I would say, no, I got to stick over here because this is the way it is. And sometimes I'm scared to think about what would I do? How would I side with that? I'm thankful. I'm so thankful that I'm where I am today with the upbringing that I had, the foundation that was laid to me to where I was brought to faith in Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful for that. Because the disciple must honestly live in the tension of the colliding worlds that are around us. Jesus was constantly having to deal with people not understanding who he was and what he was asking. Here was a guy from the wrong side of the tracks in Nazareth, in our, in our, in our terms, some guy from the hood or from eastern Kentucky that, that you just looked at and said, you know what, you're not part of my world, I don't walk in yours, and I don't know if I want to believe what you have to say. Here was a guy who worked as a carpenter. He was blue collar. He was not considered to be an intellectual elite like all the other religious people. Here was a guy who preferred the company of Torah school dropouts and guys who couldn't cut it when it came to religion. And here was a guy who at every turn really got under the skin of the Pharisees because he said things and taught things that flew in the face of all their traditions. So it was radical to follow Jesus. It's radical to follow Jesus today. And as things begin to trend, I believe there's a book somewhere that said, as days go on, things will get worse and worse for the followers of Christ and for Christian causes. It's going to seem more radical to continue to follow Jesus. Now here's a guy saying, I'm so grateful that you are following me and believing that I'm the Messiah sent to free you and to make all things right and set up a new kingdom, but I'm going to die soon. I'm getting ready to, all this is going to look really different here in just a little while. And this is why Peter struggles. Because for him, the Messiah should lead to nothing but constant victory. The Messiah should be nothing but fish and loaves and overflowing baskets and walking on water and healing the blind and the lame and the sick. And that should be what Jesus continues to do just until he dies of natural causes, not go into Jerusalem where they're going to hate him and execute him. This doesn't make any sense to him. Especially when you consider the last recorded conversation they have about the great power and authority he would be given as a disciple of the great Messiah. It doesn't look like the Messiah is going to exercise great power for himself. Matter of fact, when Jesus is on the cross, what do they say? Not the disciples, but what do they say as they mock him? <laughs> he saved others, but he can't save himself. Right? If you're really him, then call the angels to call you down, to get you down from here. All the while, Jesus could do it. But why did he not? Because as it says in our text, it was necessary for him to do this. Jesus turns and tells Peter, here's the source of the tension. The source of the tension is not Peter's lack of faith or his inability to be a disciple. Because we're all unable to be a disciple. We all have a lack of faith. At times in our lives, the tension comes from the colliding worlds. The tension comes from knowing within our spirit the way God wants them to be, but seeing that it's not that way, and it looks like God's just letting it happen. How hard it must have been for John the Beloved and for Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary Magdalene to sit at the base of the cross and watch this happen, knowing, knowing that he could have stopped it at any moment. But it was the tension of colliding worlds. In every instance during Christ's ministry, Satan used whatever he could to, dis to discourage and to deter Jesus from following through with the plan of redemption. Look what he says to Peter in verse number 23 of our text. Jesus turned and he told Peter, get behind me, Satan. Jesus be handing out nicknames to Simon all over the place, right? First is Peter, now it's Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you are not thinking about God's concerns, but about human concerns. Things are really beginning to heat up there, right? 
What's interesting to me is in every instance of Jesus' ministry, there's Satan in the shadows trying to do anything and everything he can to deter it from happening. He tempted him on the mountain of temptation for 40 days before he began his ministry. And here Satan uses one of Jesus' own followers, one that was just put in the spotlight of faith to try to tempt him to change the Father's plan. Discouragement, by the way, is a great tool that Satan uses against his disciples too. Because he used it against Jesus, he'll use it against us. But Jesus says, you're a hindrance to me. So imagine the turning of tables. He's just told Peter, I'm going to build the church on the rock of your faith. And now he's like, you're Satan. I mean, it's like, whoo, you know, that's the loop-de-loo in the, in, the, in the roller coaster, right? Does that sound like our life with Christ, though, sometimes? Some days I'm a little bit Peter, and other days I'm a little bit Satan. That's the dichotomy of, of, of the Christian life and of the life of a disciple, Peter is a hindrance. He was the rock and now he's the hindrance. What has changed? And he says, here's what has changed. He's given into the collision of colliding worlds and he's given over to human concerns. He says, you're not thinking about God's concerns. You're thinking about human concerns. Jesus had not changed. Peter had not changed, but he had changed his perspective from God's perspective to man's. This is where we get into trouble. When we get when we get so rolled up into what's going on and we begin to get fearful about everything that's going on around us and whether this side is winning or that side is winning and, and everything that you see on the news and everything you see on social media, let me just remind you based on the authority of God's word, this is not just Pastor Derek's opinion or Pastor Derek's thoughts. Jesus is king. Okay? If we are his disciples, he's our savior. It's settled forever in heaven. So what we must do is think of things from God's perspective. Jesus was trying to get his disciples to do that all the way back then when he's like, look, look at God's perspective. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to die. I'm going to raise again. But salvation's plan will be made manifest. And Peter's like, no, we're not going to do it that way. I got a better idea. And what does Peter do later on? This won't be the last time. What's Peter going to do later on in the garden? He's going to cut off a guy's ear. He's going to keep going back. He's going to keep living in this tension like a tug of war. I'm Peter. I'm Satan. I'm Peter. I'm Satan. Constantly. Oh, man, I just cut off a guy's ear. Which, by the way, it, it's, it's interesting to me that Peter is a zealot, right? So that means that he was a political operative at those times. Like, yes, he was a fisherman, but he was using, he was using a lot of his, his funds and a lot of his free time to try to overthrow the Roman government, which is why Peter carried a sword with him. Because he lived in this tension between trusting in Jesus and trusting in his own strength. And it, when the chips were down, and when it looked like Jesus needed help, what did he resort to? Not faith. He resorted to his own strength. He had gone from faith to doubt. He had gone from trust to skeptic. He had gone from obedient to defiant. He had gone from disciple to detractor. He had gone from helper to hindrance. And he had gone from rock to rebel. This happens to us so many times. Peter dealt with this tension so many times in the gospel narrative. Like I said, when he stepped out on the water to walk on water, he's looking at Jesus and he's doing just fine, but then the water begins to kind of wave and, and go around and what happens? He begins to look at that and he sinks into the water. When he pulled out that sword to cut off the ear of the soldier, that wasn't an exercise of faith. That wasn't even an exercise of love for Jesus. It was an exercise of depending upon Peter rather than depending on Christ. See, the call to be a disciple of Christ is a call to live in this tension between flesh and spirit, between the kingdom of God and the broken kingdoms of this world, between the sure promises of God and the empty claims and promises of the here and now. See, our plight as disciples of Jesus 
is to not get overwhelmed by the plot, but to look at the promise that is ahead. And so that's what I will look at in the next thing, in the next point of our, uh, of our message. But I want to give you this one verse before we do. Ephesians 6, 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. Remember, we're not fighting with the Republicans. We're not fighting with the Democrats. We're not fighting with the pro-choicers. We're not fighting with the pro-lifers. We're not fighting with, with all of that. We're fighting with cosmic forces that we can't even see. There is a spiritual war that is waging. And we wage war with the weapons of grace, love, mercy, and truth. Not a sword that cuts off an ear. Number four, a disciple, and I know that we're running very, very short on time, um, but uh, I'll try to fly through these real fast. A disciple lives in pursuit of a greater purpose. A disciple lives in pursuit of a greater purpose. Could it be that Jesus was calling Peter and the rest of the disciples to something greater than the moment that Jesus would be on the cross? Yes. Could it be that what you're going through right now and where the church is today, that God is bringing us to a point where, a point where he's calling us to something greater than ourselves, to a generation beyond ourselves, to a cause that's beyond us. Yes, we are parts of God's story. We are not the story. We are players in the story, but we are not the story. We are trophies of his grace, but we are not the main message. A disciple lives in pursuit of a greater purpose, and that purpose is, first of all, to get over ourselves. If I'm going to see the purpose in my life that God has for me, i got to get over myself. That's hard to do, right? Look at verse number 24. Jesus said to his disciples, anybody wants to follow me, let him what? Deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Dr. Tony Evans says that self-denial is the core mission of a disciple's life. It's the core mission of a disciple's life because it's going to be the core struggle all the way through it to deny myself. To say, my flesh wants this, but my spirit says this. I need to give to the spirit that tension back and forth. Self-denial. Here's why things really started to get difficult for the disciples. There had been some times in Jesus' preaching when it was just too much for people to take. The 5,000 that had come and gotten fed that one day, the next day they left when Jesus started talking, talk, started talking spiritually about what it would mean to be his disciple. And they all said it was too hard and they left. In the first section of chapter 16, we see that Jesus has to explain the man-made teachings and the laws of the Pharisees that were like leaven that poisoned true doctrine that leads to salvation. See, most of the struggle with people understanding or following Christ in his day was that they couldn't get over themselves or their own notions of what the Messiah really should be and really should do. And we paint a picture. As well as we have a picture painted of Jesus Christ today, we still struggle with replicating that, don't we? Like an artist who sits down to try to copy a classic work of Rembrandt or Picasso or somebody like that, there's always going to be a deviation we struggle still today, even though we have the greatest, we have the original right here, the original picture of Jesus, we still struggle with replicating it in our own lives. Because a struggle is we have to get over ourselves. We still always want to take Jesus and inject a little bit of ourselves into him, don't we? That's why you go into different cultures you go into cultures, I mean, y'all realize, you know, our nativity scenes that we've got, y'all realize that Jesus wasn't white, right? And he didn't have blonde hair and blue eyes. You know, and you go into other parts of the world and Jesus wasn't, didn't, didn't, wasn't, wasn't black skin color or wasn't yellow skin color. Jesus was, was an, a Middle Eastern man. He had olive-toned skin with brown hair, dark hair. 
But what do we do? It's our temptation to take Jesus and we want to make him like us rather than us be like him. See, the greater purpose is to get over myself and let Jesus be in me. I'm convinced that a lot of the problems that we're facing today in the church really boils down, boils down to this need right here. We got to get over ourselves. How can I still be a Christian and, 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 and bring alongside all these other things that I like and I'm interested in and, and to be honest with you, trust in more than I really trust in Jesus? We need to get over ourselves. Otherwise, we're trying to disciple Jesus rather than the other way around where we line up with Jesus and stop trying to line up with him and what, what, line him up with what we want. We have to stop making Jesus an accessory to my desires or a mascot for what I get excited about and go back to where he's Lord and master of my life. And it's not easy. I love what Tony Evans said here. He says, people don't typically wake up in the morning and say, I can't wait to deny myself today. I'm not saying that, that, that you'll ever get to that point. I just can't wait to say no to myself. I just can't wait to do it. But in order to experience the lordship and the provision of Christ on earth, we must be willing to say it. I'm not saying it's easy, but we have to be willing to say no to our plans, to our desires, to our ideas, and to say yes to Jesus. See, Peter's attempt to protect Jesus, get this, as much as he thought it was a good idea, Jesus said it was the work of the devil. Did you catch that? Jesus' attempt to protect Jesus, Jesus saw it and received it as a work of the devil. That applies to our lives in so many ways today. I don't have the time to really even run into all that. But there's the purpose that is greater than myself of getting over myself and then the purpose of carrying my cross, to take up my cross and to follow him. This is a nod to where the path of the disciple may lead. It may lead to uncomfortable things. It may lead. And for each one of these guys, it led to the cross or it led to some sort of execution device. Every one of these men other than Judas, that were sitting there hearing Jesus' words, died for Jesus' name. Everyone. And that purpose is a purpose of following Jesus Christ too. But what's beautiful about this, when he says, if you want to follow me, and I love the structure of the verse, if you want to follow me, here's what you need to do. Take up your cross, deny yourself, and then he says, and follow me. He begins it with an opportunity, but he ends it with an invitation in the same words. When he says, follow me at the end, he says, I invite you in. I invite you to belong to this work. None of the disciples were the most sought after guys in Israel. None of them were. But Jesus invited them into a work that would change the world. That's what as disciples we're invited into as well. When he says, follow me, take up your cross and follow me, it's an invitation to something greater. And lastly, and we're finished. A disciple lives in the hope of a great promise. A disciple lives in the hope of a great promise. Verse 27 through the end. The Son of Man is going to come with his angels, the glory of his Father, and then he will reward each according to what he has done. Did you catch that? Right after telling his disciples that he's going to die and suffer the humiliation of a criminal's death, he said he's going to come again in glory. He says, look, it may look dark right now, but it's always darkest before the dawn. There will be a day when everybody laughs and mocks and scorns the Son of Man because he looks as though he's been defeated. All of hell will celebrate because they will think that I have been defeated. But there's going to come a day when I'll vanquish sin and death and hell. And then there will come a day when I will vanquish and I will set up my kingdom. I will come in all glory. And that, friend, that church is the greatest part of the life of a disciple. 
The plot of a disciple's life is not what we live for. It's the promise of the glory that is to come in the disciple's life. It's the promise of the glory. We'll close with this one little illustration. I have a friend that um, he, he works out in, in Kansas City, and he's a big Kansas City Chiefs fan, okay? And uh, Kansas City Chiefs is football, in case you didn't know. Um, a couple of years ago, they won the Super Bowl, and it was like the first time in 50 years that they'd won the Super Bowl. And this was a pretty exciting Super Bowl. I mean, they were down and really not looking like they were going to win, and then Patrick Mahomes led them on this game-winning drive that just completely changed everything. My friend was telling this story in a sermon one time, and he said, you know, as I was watching the game live, I was literally on the verge of a heart attack. I thought it was all over. And there was a couple of throws that, you know, they go over their head and, you know, all these things that take place. And I was just scared to death watching this. I couldn't eat anything. I, I, was, I, was, just, I was just scared to death that my team was going to lose. He said, but we ended up winning. He said, and the cool thing is, is I DVR'd that game you know, he said, if we had lost, I would have just gotten rid of it. But since we won, I kept it. And he said, you know what? He said, I go back and I watch that game probably once every couple of months. He's like, and it gets to that point in the fourth quarter where it looks like all hope is lost and we're going to lose. And you know what? I'm not worried anymore. Like when that ball is in midair and that big catch is getting ready to be made, I'll go up, I'll put it on pause and I'll go upstairs and I'll grab some chips. And I'll come back down and I'll hit it again and I'll watch it because I already know how the end is going to be. I already know we won. This is the promise that we live in. We live in the tension of colliding worlds. We live in this wondering what's happening, what's going to take place, what's my life going to pan out to be? How is God going to move in this cancer? How is God moving in the earthquake? How is God, what is God saying? What is God doing? And it looks like everything is changing all around me. I want to encourage you with this. It's already played out. God's already got it. He's already in control and he wins. What's left for us is not to win. What's left for us is not to protect him through the way. What's left for us is to follow and to trust and to be faithful. So that's a challenge for us as a church. Will I be faithful to that? The challenge for all of us as just human beings is, do, will I follow this Jesus? Will I follow the king? Or will I choose other kingdoms? And let the tension of a colliding world pull me in another direction. So as we bow our head and, our close our, and we close our eyes this morning, the invitation is very simple. It's the same simple invitation that Jesus gave all the way back in verses 13 and 15 when we started this three weeks ago. Who do you say that I am? If he's the Messiah, the son of the living God, then you have that world-shaking, life-changing faith to drive you as a disciple. But if you're still struggling with who he is, then let's talk about it and let's get this taken care of. And let us show you from the word of God and let the Holy Spirit speak to you the truth of who he is and that he is the Savior and that he is your only hope. Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about his grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section. Or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.